Hey everyone, it's our season finale. I want to give a big thanks to all of our season nine duos guests, our partners, and most importantly, you all, our listeners. Special shout out to this season's presenting sponsor, Ford's Gin, for being a great partner in this season's Beyond the Plate and Beyond the Drink episodes. If you missed those Beyond the Drink episodes, be sure to check them out. We have an incredible season 10 coming your way, but first, the Beyond the Plate team is going to take a little holiday and New Year's break. So make sure you stay tuned by hitting that subscribe button on your podcast player or follow us on social media at BT Plate Podcast and on Cappy's Plate. And Beyond the Plate would not be Beyond the Plate without the amazing team that brings this podcast to life. So as always, a very special shout out to the best in the biz, Ian Cohen, Joel Yetten, Sean Petrosian, and Sarah McClellan Me. Enjoy this week's episode. Season 9 of Beyond the Plate is brought to you by our friends at Ford's Gin. Ford's Gin. A gin created to cocktail. We like to start with an audio test here on Beyond the Plate. We usually have our guests name two or three of something. For you all, let's each name two of something. Emerald, name two restaurants in New Orleans that you take out-of-towners to. Well, the classic uh, uh, Antoine's or Galatoire's. I'm a big fan of Frank Bryson's. I like Bryson's as well. People out of town, I love that. Nice. EJ, name two New Orleans-centric ingredients you use in your cooking. Sassafras or filet. I think that that shows up every now and again. And then recently doing some dessert testing, we've been using a lot of chicory, which has been good fun. All right. You both sound good. Let's do it. Hey, everyone. I'm Cappy, and you're listening to Beyond the Plate, the duo season. I'm a chef by trade and hospitality professional. By day, I head up Rachel Ray's culinary operations and co-founded her cooking and kids charity called Yummo. Six years ago, I had the idea to put together a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their communities. Hence, the name Beyond the Plate. If you're new to the pod, welcome. If you've listened before, we're so glad you're back. This season, we're featuring some of the greatest restaurant and hospitality duos in the industry. And we're grateful to our partners who make this podcast a reality. With that, I'm following up to our partnership brand mention from last episode. How was your bottle Negroni? Tell tell all the listeners, Ian. Well, it was great. I used a tip I heard on a Beyond the Drink, and I put cinnamon in it. You texted me that it was a little little too boozy for your guests, Ian. Yeah. Well, the the Ford's gin, even though it could be too boozy, it's delicious, so we drink it. Made it in the bottle. Made it in the bottle, just as you should. I did it just the way you told me. I listened to our episodes. I put the cinnamon in, a nice little orange peel going. Color was magnificent. Maybe my maybe the people we had at the party just can't handle a stiff Negroni. It's not like a spritz, you know what I mean? Like it's an aperitivo, but it's like a boozy in aperitivo. So <laughs> it's not like a spritz. As Kate Gerwin <laughs> said in her Beyond the Drink episode with Suzu, growing up, your parents say, eat your vegetables, eat your vegetables, eat your vegetables, and you don't want to. And then eventually as an adult, you're like, wow, broccoli's awesome. And so Negroni, she said, like, try it and try it again and try it again. And eventually you're like, wow, this is a delicious cocktail. And look, my first sip of Negroni, like it hits you, you know? But now I'm like, this is so good. All right, this ad read is ending and I'm gonna go drink a Negroni. Just kidding. As you all just heard, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Ford's Gin. And we all know seeing a bunch of different gin bottles at a bar, at a restaurant, at a liquor store can be daunting for some of us. So that's why Ford's Gin was crafted by bartenders for bartenders and at home bartenders like Ian 
to make a really good gin cocktail. Well played. Simon Ford noticed bartenders had various go-to gins for different classic gin cocktails and thought, why not make a gin that bartenders could use that would work perfectly in all of these drinks while keeping it at an accessible price? That's not Simon's voice, but that is what he did. So uh, speaking of Simon, I really, and I'm not just saying this, I listened to the whole thing and I enjoyed the episode with Simon and Julie. I'm glad to, I could listen to him talk all day about gin and cocktails and all of the things. That episode was great. If you haven't heard, scroll back a little bit. Simon and Julie be on the drink episode. Julie Reiner is co-founder of a couple world-renowned cocktail bars in Brooklyn. And before that, she had the Flatiron Lounge in New York City, the Pegu Club. And if you're a bartender listening to us, you know exactly these places I'm talking about. And you may have recently seen her as a judge on the Netflix show Drink Masters, which, Ian, they just announced season two. They're going to start casting soon. So if you're a bartender and you're listening to this, try out. Why not? Season two of Drink Masters. Not a sponsor. Netflix is not Netflix a sponsor. is not a sponsor. <laughs> One of the things we love about our partners at Beyond the Plate is how they all give back, and Ford's does so within the bartending community. Or as Simon says in that episode, Ford's is always trying to push their social consciousness forward. They've also supported plenty of events and fundraisers and continuously have the bartending community in mind. So if you want to learn more about Ford's Gin, go to Ford'sGin.com and follow them on social media at Ford's Gin. Please drink responsibly. Ford's London Dry Gin, 45% ABV, Brown Foreman, Louisville, Kentucky. Ford's Gin is a registered trademark. Ford's Gin, we thank you. Hey everyone, one more thing. The team behind Beyond the Plate is excited to bring you a brand new podcast called Clean Play Club. Clean Play Club is a kid and family friendly podcast that is kind of like story time, but with recipes. Listen along as we share delicious dishes and tasty treats from chefs and celebrities who cook at home with their kids. Clean Play Club is a great way to get kids excited about food and cooking. Find it on all major podcast platforms and on Instagram at Clean Play Club Pod. Now, enjoy this week's episode. When it comes to father-son duos, these two were definitely at the top of our list this season. I'm Lagasi. Honestly, it feels a little silly to even have to intro you, but here we go. He's a chef proprietor of eight restaurants, has hosted more than 2,000 shows on the Food Network and plenty more TV, best-selling author of 19 cookbooks, in 2002 established the Emeril Lagasse Foundation to support children's educational programs, was named Humanitarian of the Year by the James Beard Foundation in 2013, and there are probably over 100 more things I can share, but most importantly for me, as I watched him explode on TV in the late 90s while I late in bed, late at night in college, he inspired my decision to leave the university I was at to pursue an education and career in culinary arts. Thank you, Chef. EJ Lagasse is, you guessed it, the son of Emeril Lagasse. No surprise, he fell in love with food at a very young age and spent most of his teenage life in kitchens. At 13, he started working in the kitchen at Merrill Restaurant, named after his sister, and continued working in kitchens ever since. He staged at a number of iconic restaurants around the world where he gained invaluable experience, which we now all get to experience. At just 20 years old, he will reopen Emerald's restaurant, bringing the new and modern techniques he learned to the flagship, leading the day-to-day culinary development. Please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the plate for our season finale with Chefs Emerald and EJ Lagasse. All right, not sure if you're aware, but we're wrapping up our duo season, guys. And as a dynamic duo yourselves, I want to start with a little icebreaker. Say the first thing that comes to mind. Emerald, tell me the last great 
bite you had of one of EJ's dishes? Uh, just before we closed. So the restaurant's been closed since about the middle of June, doing this complete renovation. We actually gutted the restaurant and we're sort of, um, you know, not changing the foundation, just looking at a new era for the future. So that's probably the day that we closed was probably the last bite that I had. And I think it was uh, sort of the beef with Dobe Glace, his cheesecake uh, that he's sort of re-reinvented of an old classic dish of mine, uh, which is dynamite. Same thing with the potato Alexa, a dish that I created many, many years ago for Alexa Joel. And he sort of has refined that uh, with his study. And not only is it fun, but is it really damn delicious. EJ, how about you? Last great bite of food you had of one of dad's dishes. Oh man, I, I think the last time that I actually went to go see my parents at, at their house, he knew I was coming and so he just made this like ridiculous uh, spicy rigatoni into tomato and the whole deal. And then the last time he cooked for me and it was, I mean, I think I had like, he remembers, I had like four helpings. It was ridiculous. <laughs> for those of you listening, I got to tell you, this is already so fun. Like Emeril talking about the cheesecake that EJ re-reinvented. EJ smiling as Emeril smiling, talking about it. This is, I, I love this energy here. It's so good. We have, we have um, a lot of fun, man. Yeah, I could tell. Guys, we like to kind of start these off. I'm going to go a little quicker here, but we like to kind of kick this off like where it all began, and that's childhood. So, Emeril, take me through really quick, like what kind of kid were you? Well, I was. Um, I had a lot of music in background, percussionist, turned down a full scholarship to music school, to the New England Conservatory, to pay to go to cooking school. Went to a high school culinary program. Then I went to Johnson & Wales, and then I traveled abroad, and then I moved to New York City, and I worked for Wolfgang for a bit. Then I joined a hotel company, an Irish hotel company, and that's when I met the Brennans, and in 1982, invited me to come to New Orleans to visit. They were looking for an American chef. One of my mentors was Larry Forgione, and I know recently you had him on. He sort of was a big influence to me to take over Commander's Palace after Paul Prudhomme. So I was there for almost eight years and fell in love with the city of New Orleans and the warehouse district and decided to open my own shingle in the warehouse district, Emeralds, and that's 33 years ago. Wow, that's wild. But like growing up, who cooked at home, mom? My mom was mostly the cook. My dad could cook, but my mom was the majority cook, which was Portuguese. So we had a lot of Portuguese influence in the household. And still today, lots of memories of that. EJ and I and the family, we visit Portugal quite a bit. We're actually, EJ and I are planning on a new project down the road in New Orleans that will be Portuguese inspired. So it's kind of in he and I's blood, you know, this Portuguese roots, but it was really my mom that was the big influence. So is that why you worked in a Portuguese bakery? Was that in Vancouver? No, that was in Fall River, Massachusetts, which is a predominant Portuguese little city in between Cape Cod and Providence, sort of 20 miles from Providence, a little less than 20 miles from New Bedford, which is another Portuguese influenced city, but also a big fishing city. Yeah, I think it has the biggest the biggest capacity of or the biggest population of Portuguese people outside of Portugal. I like remember you telling me that or hearing that somewhere, but like between New Bedford and Fall River, it's like the largest amount of Portuguese people outside of Portugal. And outside of that, not in North America, outside of that is Toronto. Uh, Toronto's a big Portuguese-influenced city as well. But New Bedford being the scallop capital and Portuguese having quite a bit of knowledge about fishing, it was just a, it was fun growing up. EJ, besides the kitchen, what else were you up to as a little kid? What were you getting punished for? I, I played a lot of soccer growing up. That was sort of the other 
big thing. I think any kid at some point has that thing where they're like, oh, I'm going to be a pro athlete. Like, I got this. This is, you know, easy. No problem. Were you good? I mean, I was decent. I wasn't like fantastic, but I, I played. I was a captain of the team. It was fun. We had a good time. But yeah, there was a lot of that. And then, I mean, there was genuinely a lot of cooking. Like when people are like, when you say that, people are like, okay, come on, you're saying that because of what you do now. It's like, no, like there was a lot of that. I mean, there was, when my dad was home, whether it be, you know, if, if he was working in the restaurants or if he had been filming or something when he was home, we were cooking at the house. I mean, we would go out to eat. There were a couple of spaces that we would go and eat out, special occasion and things like that. But other than that, I mean, we were cooking at home. And so there was a lot of that, which I guess that the only thing in getting in trouble at that point would have been just, uh, you know, a bit too much salt and something. But other than that, everything was pretty smooth and breezy. Yeah, when we lived in New York, it was a pretty much everyday thing. We lived across the street in Manhattan. We lived across the street from a, a wonderful fish market and a wonderful cheese shop. And then right next door to the cheese shop was the butcher. Uh, Leonard. And so I would take EJ and I would take Merrill sometimes together or separately as separate time, love time. And EJ wasn't so much of a fan of the cheese store. Merrill was a fanatic about the cheese store, but EJ was a fanatic about the fish market and going to talk to Leonard about different cuts of meat, etc. So what EJ was saying, we would do that, just come home and, and, and cook. I love that so much. EJ, are there like dishes or, or smells you remember like as a kid? Yeah, I mean, I think the most common thing that we did was salmon because there was always just, I loved it as a kid. I loved salmon as a kid. I think I ate so much of it when I was a kid that maybe now I shy away from it a bit, but there was a lot of salmon, skin on, hard sear, lentils de puy, you know, carrots. And he always used to put cumin in his lentils, which I always really enjoyed as a kid. And so that was like, it was like salmon and lentils were the big thing. And that was a pretty much weekly thing. You know, as a parent, my kids ate everything. So there wasn't like a discussion of, well, I don't really care for onion, dad, or I don't like octopus. It was never a discussion of that. They ate everything that we cooked and put on the table or to go out. They would, they, you know, they would have their staples. They would have their spaghetti pomodoro. But for the most part, they were always adventurous eaters, particularly Egypt. Yeah, I mean, there was never, I don't, I don't ever remember a time of being like, oh, I'm not going to try that. And it wasn't like he was, dad, dad would just be there be like, no, no, like you got to eat this. It was more of like, a, all right, like, you know, let's, let's, let's see what up. I, I remember going to Joe Beef when I was like eight or nine with him and like crushing horse tartare. It was like, that's just, we were going to do that. This is just what it was. So EJ, was there a moment when you were young that you started to understand dad was a big deal? Yeah, I think Princess and the Frog, the Disney movie, that was the big one. When that came out, I was obviously a kid. There was a new Disney movie out and my father was voicing the gator in the movie. And I was like, that's pretty cool. And so, you know, I think as a kid, seeing him get stopped, you know, walking around New York, seeing him get stopped and somebody saying hi to him or something like that or, or asking for a picture or whatever it may have been, I always assumed, I think very early on, that it had to do with Princess and the Frog. And then I realized... Oh, it's because he's got this television show and he, every, he's in everybody's house at seven o'clock at night. So that was sort of, then I put that together. I was like, I put two and two together and I was like, okay, well, okay. That makes a lot more sense than him being the gator and a lot of people just freaking out about that. That's really funny. So when you decided to go to culinary school, was that a given or was it like a, up for debate? There was a lot of discussion about it because I really, I didn't want to go to school. I didn't want to. I was finishing up 
high school and I had been working in restaurants and I had been in New York working and stuff. And I was like, man, like, I just want to move somewhere and pick a restaurant and try to get in and try to work there. And dad was fully on board. I really went to university because my, I think my mom would have been like, okay, a little bit upset that I had just decided to not go. But then I, I, I did go and tour Johnson and Wales with my parents. And it was such an amazing campus in, in, in Providence. And they were so welcoming when I was there and the students were having a great time. And I met a bunch of the chef instructors who ended up being my chef instructors a few years later. And I was really, you know, impressed by their ability. I watched, I sat in on a class, I talked to them and I really enjoyed their philosophy of like trying to teach the next generation of young chefs. Are you glad you went? I'm glad I went. I'm really glad I went. I loved it. I love being there. I wasn't there very long. I think it was probably a total of like nine months or something like that. Yeah, you were a pretty quick study. I loved being there. It was great. I met a lot of people that I'm still very close with that are involved with the school, involved with the university. They've allowed us to have quite a great internship program in, in the restaurant and bring people down. So it's been fantastic. It's been great. I love Johnson Wells. It's great. Emerald, you've tasted a lot of food in your life as a judge on Top Chef and plenty of other shows and restaurants and whatnot. Do you remember the first thing EJ cooked that you were like, wow, like this kid's got it? Do you know the answer to this, EJ? No, I have no clue. I have oh, no This clue. is good. Okay. I'm trying to think because there's a lot of there's a lot of food that he that he cooked and would try. So I'm trying to think of I mean I can tell you recently he just talked earlier about my sausage rigatoni. I, and I got to tell you, when the last time he made sausage rigatoni, it was unbelievable. He has a knack, and I think that is from Chef Repair. He has a really passion and has a really good knack for cooking fish and seafood. And, and that was sort of, you brought up Johnson & Wales with EJ. I can remember having a family discussion. I can remember we were having family dinner at Cafe Boulou in New York. And we got into this discussion. I guess EJ was like maybe 14. And during the dinner table, when we were doing a tasting menu, he looked at his mom and I and said, look, I've decided what I want to do. And so we're like, okay. There was no questions asked about what you wanted to do. And we never really had a discussion about him being in the restaurant business or being a chef. We had had, said, there had been little bits and pieces. Like, I mean, earlier than that, dinner at Cafe Baloo, there was the other dinner when Gavin Kaysen was the chef at Cafe when when I had that duck that I still talk about that's unbelievable, that I was like, okay, that's a possibility to be a chef. And then really ironing it out, I think, was at that family dinner you're saying. Well, Gavin was a very talented chef, but we had this discussion at the table. And after he said that to his mom and I, we, we got into a discussion. We said, well, look, you're going to have to leave the nest. And growing up in New York City, as he did, born and when pretty much raised in New York, we said, okay, well, you're going to have to leave the nest eventually when you can and go elsewhere. So he spent two summers, 15 and 16. I think two it was summers. The two summers before that. Yeah. So he spent two summers working for Eric at Le Bernardin, uh, living back in New York City, primarily alone. That That's EJ. Yeah. I mean, he was across the street from the restaurant and set up and his mom and I are well protected. And probably some people think that we were probably awful parents that we would let our child be in New York City at 15. And then, and that's when, I think that's when another super layer of passion got to EJ with that experience. And he worked with Danielle for a bit, but I think Chef Repair, that layer really sort of just got EJ and really opened his eyes to a lot of great things. There was a moment for me being at La Bernadette that was the first time that was mainly understanding that there was a similarity between a restaurant that I had always looked at as 
the best restaurant in New York City. It was the special occasion restaurant. It was the temple of seafood that it obviously still is, run by these amazing people, awarded everything under the sun, New York Times, all that stuff. It was the best. And then when I was in there, it was so far and above what I had seen previously, obviously, but I could see the similarities linking some of our restaurants to it and things like that. And I think it was just normal systems and procedures of restaurants. But there was something that clicked in my head that I was like, wait, this is not so, so far away from day to day what goes on at Emeralds or at, at, at Delmonico Steakhouse or any of our other restaurants. Like, This is not so night and day as I maybe thought and assumed that it was. And I think with a few discussions with dad and a few things that we know and that he knows and a few things of people that we can bring in, we might be able to get a restaurant like Emeralds to operate at a level uh, once again as, as high as La Bernadette was at when I was there and as it is there as it is today. But I think there was something that clicked in my head that was like, wait, I think that's something that we could probably achieve is running something as efficiently and well-oiled as La Bernadette does. Because I remember hearing stories from my dad and from many people that have worked in the restaurant, our restaurants for a long time, saying about, man, when it opened, when, it, when the restaurant opened in those first 10 years and all of this, and I think it was just sort of this drive of, hey, we can kind of, we can regain that that steam. We can build on that again. So that was an interesting thing that, that happened to me when I was there, for sure. The passion build that Dad spoke of just now. Emeril, you mentioned Commander's Palace earlier. You spent seven years there, I believe, and then left to open Emeralds. Was that in 1990 you opened Emeralds originally? I opened Emeralds in 1990. In 1990. How did you know you were ready to open your own restaurant? Well, I had an unbelievable relationship with Ella Brennan and her brother Dick as well, but the two of them were my mentors, but Ella particularly. Ella really couldn't boil water, but she had this incredible knowledge about food. She read so much and she traveled so much and she studied every day she studied. And those influences influenced me, obviously, and really taught me how to be a better restaurateur or a great restaurant tour. I think that they were some of the best restaurant tours in the world. I've been to just about all of them. And so that and her constant drive of trying to be the best. I remember every Saturday, we would sit in her office for at least an hour, sometimes more. And she would, she'd have a stack of cookbooks, two or three, and she'd be flipping through them. And I could see it right now. She'd be flipping the pages and she would say, oh, okay, what about this dish? Do you think that we could creolize that? Do you think you could creolize that? Do you think that you could rework that dish and make it a Commander's Palace dish? And so she gave me this window because there was no way of changing the menu. The trout almondine and the trout pecan and the redfish, that you're not going to, wasn't going to take that off the menu. But what she allowed me this window to be creative on a nightly basis and use that as a, a vehicle to educate the staff and to take the staff to further places and not just be on the ground constantly just pumping out. So that was eventually her and I were going to do a shingle together. She wanted to be in the French Quarter because of demographics. And I wanted to pioneer the warehouse district, which is where I lived and dreamed of, you know, they didn't even have street lights, you know, at the time. And so I pioneered and didn't have a lot of money. So had to do what I had to do in this warehouse and did a lot of painting and did everything pretty much my, myself for six months before we opened. And uh, then we opened in, in uh, March of 1990. What was the North Star for Emeralds back then? Like what made it so special? Well, the North Star for me was to be the best New Orleans restaurant for New Orleanians. 
because if I could accomplish that and had a local clientele that felt that they were coming to one of the best restaurants in the city, then I knew it would be successful. I never really thought of the word, when I opened Emeralds, I never thought of the word tourist. I had a well-established clientele from commanders and from the city and from the state that would visit once a week, sometimes three times a week, that would come. I had various clubs that formed. I had a Ferrari club that came on Fridays, this group of six or seven guys they would order Bordeaux and Burgundies out the wazoo, and I would cook for them. Back then, we even had a tasting menu in 1990 that I had established in at Commander's Palace. It wasn't printed. It was all done with my memory. And sometimes it got a little hairy because some nights it would take off and we'd do 60, 70 tasting menus with, with a piece of paper and a pen. I watched you do that not too long ago probably 18 months ago, I, right before I came back to Emeralds, I went to visit him in Florida and the Florida restaurant was, they were so busy. I mean, it was, it was like 350 covers and something and so busy. And he comes in and I was just there. I'm just there seeing stuff. And he comes, he's like, all right, we're going to do a tasting tonight. We're going to, we're going to roll it. And he did it the old commander's early Emeralds way. And it was an all verbal tasting menu, nothing printed. And I think they did 90 menus that night. And I was just like, I, I was just like, okay, this is great, man. And it, they did it, and they did it, and I can't imagine how well they did it back when that was just the. No there was no other way. There was no other way they were going to do that. So when that was the system, I'm like, man, that must have been what a blast that would have been to be in that kitchen. Just, I mean, you know, oh, that's so cool, Emerald. At what point in your career did you realize you made it as a chef? I'm still waiting for that day. I'm still waiting for that day. I get up every day and I'm trying to do a little better than I did yesterday. And that's been my philosophy for a long time. And I'm so excited about the reopening of Emeralds and what's happening in New Orleans and in the state of Louisiana and the farmers that um, EJ and his team now have taken what I had established and have built even more so on that. Great. EJ, you've cooked and staged in a number of iconic kitchens, which you and your dad had mentioned, Repair, Balloud, et cetera, et cetera. Is there a moment or something you can share from a specific kitchen you worked in that stood out to you that maybe you want to use in your kitchen now? Yeah. I mean, I think that when I was working at La Bernadette, I think it was fantastic because of the approach that everybody had to, to the food and to the sort of drive to be a really great restaurant and keep that history of being a fantastic restaurant alive, right? And then when I worked in London, the whole thing was pursuit of excellence. I mean, that was the MO at core. That was the whole thing, a pursuit of excellence and just continuous. So I got to a point where I was in, I'd been in New York and I'd been in London and I'd been working in a bunch of these different restaurants. And I was like, man, this is really a push. This is 95 hours a week, 100 hours a week. This is wild. This is great. I love it, but this is a lot. And I was like, how can I build myself to be a manager to, I get, to where I get to a point where I, I can have people and get everybody on board and for that vision of, of pursuing excellence and things like that and being very intentional about everything and, and also showing that respect to the history of the restaurant at Emeralds. And how can I also do that while making it a very enjoyable place to work at or that you're feeling you're getting something back from? And when I got to Stockholm, I, I really saw how that was accomplished. It was really well done at Franz and it was, it was fantastic. You know, the team was like, you get there in the morning and everybody's really immaculate, really sharply dressed. Everything's really great. The mise en place that's going on is fantastic. 
but you know, there's like Dua Lipa in the background. Like making it a little bit more lively, a little bit more taking what we do very seriously, but not taking ourselves so seriously, I think was sort of what I gathered from my time around. So when I, when I came to Emeralds, the thing was there was no way to instill the culture of do your job, do it intentionally and do it well without giving the reason to do that. So I wanted to and continue, obviously, every single day and will for the next 40 years, but continue to sort of get the team and everybody excited to be there every day. And so whether that's bringing farmers in to speak to the team about what certain grain you're getting from North Carolina or having the team sort of would do a, a staff projects thing. I do this thing where we'll get everybody around and we have a very brief little thing. And maybe one day while we're doing a team mesem plus job, we've assigned somebody the week before, let's talk about a, a restaurant. Let's talk about Chez Panisse or something. Tell me about Chez Panisse. Let's all talk about Chez and go into Alice and let's talk about it. And so for 10 minutes while we're doing a staff mesem plus job, maybe my, my, my meat cook, my meat chef to party is, is talking about Japanese or something, you know, a, a little project like that. So engagement with the staff, I think I found out was the most important thing that I wanted to get back because I heard all these stories when I was a kid and, and, and coming up in restaurants about these crazy things my dad would do, like walk a palm tree into the dining room to explain what hearts of palm is to the front of house team, stuff like that. And so I was like, okay, I, we got to do that again. You got to do stuff like that. So I did a very similar thing with sugarcane and walked a thing of sugarcane into the dining room. I'm like, so... It was staff engagement. That was really the, the one that I really wanted to bring back. I wanted to get everybody engaged and feel like they were getting something other than just obviously the monetary aspect of a job. Let them feel like they were really getting something out of the job. So I know you were in Balut's kitchen and I wanted to ask this. Dad earlier mentioned when you lived across the street from the butcher, how you were so, you, you love the butcher and Leonard so much. And I reached out to Chef Balut to say, got anything you want me to ask uh, chefs? He said, yeah, I have a question. Ask EJ what his favorite braising cut of meat is and how he likes to prepare it. Of course, of course, Danielle, of course. Man, I mean, I mean, it really depends, right? Because, I mean, if, if you're going into, you know, beef bourguignon and things like that, things that you're going to be, you're going to be stewing things. There was a dish that Hilda used to do that you did a few times that, and I don't even know if it's a Portuguese thing or just a hodgepodge of a bunch of stuff. I've read a lot of Portuguese cookbooks and never seen this one come up. So I doubt it. I think this was probably of the imagination of someone. I don't even know how to describe this. It was like turnip and it was mashed down and sort of diced down a bit, but it was like stewed. So you had cut it, but it had been like mashed through. So it was like medium dice turnip absolutely gone through and made into sort of, I guess, the texture of like mushy peas, if that makes any sense. Is that something you grew up eating, like you recall? Or? He made it, I, re I recall this like in my childhood, he probably made this four or five times. And I probably should have requested it more, I guess, but it was one of the most unbelievable things. And there was beer involved. And I believe that you were going short rib. You were doing short ribs when you were doing this back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. And so it like the short rib. And then I, I very vividly remember being like four or five years old and the bones coming out of the short ribs. And I, I don't, I mean, obviously you're just low and slow for quite some time that you were doing there. I don't remember exactly how long or I don't think if you gave me a bag of all the ingredients, I could make exactly what he had done. I could come up with something similar, but, but I remember it being like beer braised beef with like turnips 
and you served it sometimes with rice, you would serve it with the potatoes, you would do sort of little turned down like spring onions into it as a, as I guess a garnish or something and they were just sort of braised. And I just remember that being very delicious. Plenty of those memories come back, huh? Yeah, like I don't remember. Did Danielle give you a cut of meat? He didn't, but now I want to ask him. <laughs> yeah, now we need to ask Danielle. Good on him though. Man, that's so funny. I texted him the other day about wishing him well with something in personal life and he just sent me a meme emoji of himself blowing kisses at me. So I was like, okay, chef, sounds, sounds great, chef. Hope you're well. So. so Emerald, I think you were around 30 when you opened Emeralds and EJ changing the game here at 20. So you guys started to sprinkle in bits about Emeralds 2.0 or the new iteration of Emeralds, a new version. EJ, you want to share some more of what we can expect in this new version? Sure. I mean, I took over to Chef Patron when I was 19, which is wild, obviously, but he was 23 when he went to Commander, so not that far off. But look, I mean, we've gutted the building, completely gutted it and taken it down to the studs. It's been a massive undertaking. Uh, we've had a fantastic team behind it, you know, getting it done. Uh, it's really close now to being finished. We are days away from really moving into the kitchen, about three days away from that at the time of uh, recording this. But, you know, when we get back, it's going to be a, a smaller dining room than it was before. I think the main reasoning behind that was I wanted more things under the magician's hat, if that makes sense. I wanted more front of house team behind the scenes. I wanted more stuff to be hidden. There are girdons and things that were used for tray drops and things like that to get food into the dining room that were exposed. And so I think a lot of the architectural change to the restaurant was involving the, the sort of hiding of some of those service points so that less was in the guest site. But yeah, so I think the goal was to, to move a lot of that stuff behind the scenes and allow that its own area. And then I, I wanted it to be a bit more, and after some discussions with, with that, we, we, we wanted it to be a bit more quaint, um, the dining room. We've taken something that's been there for 33 years. The first part of the restaurant before we bought the addition, you know, was basically 22 tables in the food bar. When we bought the addition, it expanded the bar a bit and gave us more tables. So we were at about 32, 34 tables the whole restaurant, and then the food bar, and then the bar. And so now with this new configuration that we've done and that, um, that EJ and the team spearheaded, the main dining room will only have 12 tables, and there will be the wine bar will only have 46 seats. And the wine bar will be where you can order a la carte, but fun, not just the gumbo and barbecue shrimp, but some really fun, creative things that the team is doing as well. But in the main dining room now, it'll... It strictly will be just tasting menu, either classic uh, or seasonal. We've even eliminated the food bar, which was a big thing for Ooh, me. He's revealing, he's revealing my secrets, Andrew. Well, I'm sorry, but I mean, it was a, that was a big thing because there were no food bars. The only food bar in America that I knew of when I opened Emeralds was at Coyote Cafe in Santa Fe, New Mexico under Mark Miller. And I did probably the second food bar in America. And so that food bar has become really part of the restaurant for a long, long time. Yeah, part of all of our other restaurants, to be honest. Most of them do include. And I, and I did the food bar because I didn't want to intimidate people coming, single people in the warehouse district, coming to a white tablecloth restaurant. I didn't want them to be intimidated. So 
That's why I did the food bar in the first place. And then it just sort of caught on, like EJ said, we have, you know, we have a food bar in, in most of our restaurants now at Merrill. And, but anyhow, it's really quite, it was bittersweet for me when we first closed and then seeing the evolution of where these guys are going and what EJ and what Mike Olson and the team have done and Kristen and Alden, uh, it's been, it's really been incredible for me to see the evolution of what's getting ready to happen and to see the new era that's going to take place is just super exciting. How are you guys both feeling about it? I'm so excited. It's unbelievable, personally. Yeah, I can't sleep at night, but I'm very excited. It's unbelievably exciting. Uh, I think that I know to take all of these ideas that I know that he's had for a number of years, probably 33, and to take you know, some ideas that I've been thinking about since I was a child in the space and to kind of see them come to life is pretty surreal, to be honest with you. And so we'll have all the tools necessary to do what we want to do and, 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 and we'll go from there. I think the big thing is that going into this, we have a really super incredible team, both front and back of the house. Great mixology program, great mixologist, of course, a grand award winner for 20 some years with our wine list and continuing to grow as we speak and really good front of the house, probably the best that we've ever had, and really great people in the kitchen that EJ's assembled. Uh, really, a really awesome team. So I'm as excited about that as the physical restaurant opening, because as I've always said, when, when the Super Bowl, you got to have a great team. It's not just a quarterback. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I want to touch upon social impact and then we'll do a quick speed round and close it out. As I think you guys know, the podcast celebrates social impact with all of our guests and learning how everyone does it is what keeps us going, whether it's a cause or organization, something personal, something through the business, whatever it may be. I know there's so many ways you all do it, uh, mainly through Emerald Legacy Foundation, which you all you established in 2002, I think it was, Emerald. I'm actually curious, though. I know you had this vocational training of culinary arts in high school. Did that inspire your foundation work somehow? No. My, my true inspiration for the foundation was I was on the board of Andre Agassi's foundation for 10 years. And to see Andre the way that Andre is, he's such a humble, incredible human being. To see him do in Las Vegas, which people said would, would be unheard of, to build a school step by step through his foundation and through his incredible talents as one of the world's best tennis players, but one of the world's greatest human beings as well. To see that and sitting on the board and being close to Andre, I finally said to my wife, 22 years ago, I said, Alden, we need to do that. I don't know how we're going to do it, but we need to do that. We really need to inspire children from a culinary arts perspective, an educational perspective, from a food perspective. We need to do that. And her and I set our goals out to do that. And, you know, we're going to celebrate our 20th year this year. We're planning on already 25th. We have this legacy program that we now have six, soon to be eight, kitchen, school, and garden programs that is just incredible. And it, now it's happening a lot more outside of New Orleans as well. It's happening in other states that we support as well, Las Vegas and California and in Florida, uh, Mississippi. So that's really the influence of, was really, the impact was really Andre, that, that Andre Agassi that really inspired me. Wow, that's incredible. 
I didn't know that. That's so cool to hear. I got to tell you, I'm based, EJ, I don't know if you knew this, but I'm actually based in Chicago. And yesterday I was at the ribbon cutting for a school that I've been a part of for 10 years called the Academy for Global Citizenship. And that's one of the schools that the foundation supported, one of their teaching kitchens. So I was able to see that yesterday and the, I took a picture of the sign. And by the way, Brian was there and neither of us ran into each other. I just emailed him this morning. I was like, were you in Chicago for that? And I was under the same tent as you and we didn't see each other? That's a special school for us. And we're looking at another one in Chicago right now. Well, like I said, we have six and we're planning on having eight by the end of next year. And by our 25th anniversary, we're, the goal is to have 15. Amazing. So great. So great. EJ, anything you plan to do there in the philanthropy or space i'm sure you support the foundation plenty yeah, um, yeah i mean look obviously it's a as you said it's a legacy program so i just as as we've done with with emeralds and, and trying to keep that going i'm, I'm i will absolutely uh, want to be keeping the, the foundation going and i think my way of supporting it now is different than maybe people that are a, a, a bit older or a bit more established are supporting it my way of supporting it now is we've, we have these kids that have gone through these culinary schools and these culinary programs that aren't necessarily emerald legacy foundation schools, but perhaps some of the earlier teaching kitchens that were around within the last 12 years, really, we've had graduates of those schools, one of which now is my chef de partie on the fish, one of the lead cooks at the Emeralds, in the Emeralds Kitchen. He's been with the restaurant group for 11 years, went to Johnson & Wales on the Emerald Agassi Scholarship. And so I think my way of supporting it now is trying to go to some of these culinary schools that we've supported, whether they're built up from the foundation or just monetarily supported by the foundation, and go in and talk to them and show face. Not that we're just some massive foundation board that's just donating money. We're actually involved. We're actually there and doing things. And so my goal is to, uh, you know, a great example would be like NOCA, which is here in New Orleans. Uh, we've supported them. There's an Emerald Agassi kitchen there. Going there, speaking to their young culinarians, the young students that they have there and saying, hey, look, when you finish up here, come hang out at Emeralds for a little bit. By all means, we would love to have you come see what it's about. Come eat. Come all of those things that, you know, just to promote excitement amongst young people that are getting into this industry. Because as we know, after everything in the last four four years, some people decided that this wasn't really for them, that were maybe going into it. So that's sort of how I plan to support in the next in, in the short term, but in the long term, I look to expand upon. Maybe by the 50th anniversary of the Emerald Legacy Foundation, we can have 100 schools. I'll tell Brian that next week, that that's yeah. my goal. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> you know, you speak about NOCA, which is a high school program that we've put together here in New Orleans and really have built the program. And like EJ said, we've built a, a classroom. No, more than a classroom. It's a full-on program. Johnson & Wales, with some people on the foundation, wrote the curriculum, and the program is incredibly successful. But getting back to what I really wanted to say was that one special thing, one of the events that we do for the foundation is called Carnival de Ven every November. And this year, we have Claire Smith from CORE, and we have Michael Mina coming. Unfortunately, we just lost a, a good friend, good chef, who was going to be the third reception chef. But anyhow, the children at that program, the kids at the program, they write the menu. And even though that it's a high school program and that they, they can't taste the wine, they smell the wine to do the pairing, they do the main dinner for Carnival de Ven, which is super exciting. Yeah, I love that. That's really cool. I hear a lot, a lot about that event. All right, we'll do a quick speed round and then closing it out. Number one, Emerald, what did you have for dinner last night? I made for my wife, she requested Portuguese kale soup. So we had 
a couple of bowls of kale soup, and she made some cornbread. FedEx me some, man. Come on. <laughs> EJ, how about you? What did, I, what did I eat last night? Oh, I, I went to a, a lovely local re- I went to Herb Saint, uh, which is Donald Ling's flagship restaurant here in New Orleans. It's nearby the restaurant. We finished up pretty late last night, so we, uh, we went over there and just got a, a quick snack, and it's delicious as always. So. Got it. Emerald, name a smell in the kitchen you love. Bay leaf. Smell in the kitchen you hate. Bad oil. Emerald, give me one word that describes EJ. Vibrant. EJ, one word that describes dad. Honest. Like it. All right, EJ, you're the youngest chef we've had on the podcast. What does success look like for you five years from now or 10 years from now? Keep pushing at Emeralds and that's that. Keep that going and keep, I have no interest in opening opening an EJ Legacy restaurant. I've got a restaurant, just built it basically. So we're, I'm good. We'll keep rocking and rolling and see where it takes us. Nice. Emerald, any fatherly advice you can share with me as a dad myself that maybe you provide to EJ? Well, I wouldn't ask uh, you to do anything that I wouldn't do. And I would say to be true and be honest. I like it. What's next for you, Emerald? Well, I mean, we have a couple projects on the drawing board. Uh, I don't plan on retiring any anytime soon. I'm able to slow down a little bit thanks to EJ and, and the team. I've never had uh, in... 40 plus years time to take my wife to lunch or go away for the weekend like normal people do. So I'm excited about that, but I'm not planning on stopping. We've got some really exciting stuff on the drawing board and we're just going to continue to wake up and try a little bit better than we did yesterday. Love it. Thank you both so much. Really appreciate your time. Best of luck. I'm excited to get out to New Orleans. EJ, keep rocking and rolling. And thank you both for your time. I appreciate it. Keep Keep us posted and keep in touch. Thanks again to Chefs Emeril and EJ Lagasse. Find Emeril on Instagram at Emeril and find EJ at EJ Lagasse. To learn more about Emeril Lagasse Foundation, go to emerald.org. We'll share links in the episode notes and at beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media at OnCappy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is also on social at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself, along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yetten, and Sean Petrosian. Our digital media producer is Sarah McClellan Mead. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. As always, a special shout out to my wife, Katie. If you have a moment, would you be so kind as to rate or review and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice? Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy. And remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.